Someone from the seven o'clock must have slipped in here this morning or something. That's what they do. Thanks. <laughs> I was going to make a joke. Last night, I, I wasn't quick enough getting everything set up before that video ended, and I was taking a drink, and I was like mid-gulp, and the lights came up, and I was like, Whoa, you know, and that was everyone. So I, I made sure I hurried up and got everything squared away. Um, everyone well this morning? Good? Right? Okay. Glad you guys are here. I was talking about last night, the Lord kind of played a trick on us Friday. It was like 70 degrees. So I busted out the flip-flops, got the feet prepared, you know, and wore flip-flops all day, thought we had arrived, and then Saturday happened. And, um, and then today it was, what, like 20 degrees this morning? So we've just backslid right back into this terrible weather. So glad you guys are here. Um, we are working through the book of 1 Corinthians. I was in Cannon County last weekend. Missed you guys, but Greg did a really, really phenomenal job with chapter four. Yeah, Greg did a good job. We are getting into, if you have not been here, uh, 1 Corinthians so far hasn't been that difficult. And when I say difficult, this book of the Bible is not difficult to understand. It is very difficult to apply. That's what makes this book of the Bible uh, dense, if you will. So if you haven't been here, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It is a letter written from Paul to a church in southern Greece. And what makes this book of the Bible so important is it was written to a bunch of Christians who knew better. They had access to the word. They had access to good leadership. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They were gifted. They were talented. They were prosperous. They had everything working for them, right? But they were starting to turn their back on the word of God and they were reverting back to putting all of their faith in culture or the wisdom of the world is what Paul calls it, okay? And because they are turning their back on what they know is right, all of these problems start to ensue within the Christian community. It makes it so pertinent to read this book of the Bible right now because you're seeing it in real time in the United States. We're seeing this in the Christian church in the United States. I was talking to someone last week and they said, Corey, does it bother you that Christianity is declining in the world? And I said, Christianity is not declining in the world, it's declining in the United States. It's virtually growing everywhere else in the world. So where, where we're at right now, and uh, chapter four kind of kicked it off, but chapter five, six, seven, we're gonna get into it pretty heavy. Um, it, gets, it gets pretty offensive. It starts kind of hitting home a little bit, kind of gets in our personal space just a touch. And chapter five is really gonna do that. But what we read about in chapter four was Paul addressed the fact that there was a bunch of sin going on in, in Corinth. And he said, listen, you guys have gotten arrogant, but I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna hold you accountable. He says, do you want me to come back angry? Which means you haven't repented, you haven't been humble. Or do you want me to come back as a loving, gracious father figure? And, and that's because you have been humble, you have repented. What do, what do you want? Last week when I taught that chapter, what that made me think of is that one day Jesus is going to come back and we are going to see one of two sides of Jesus. We're either going to see the righteous judge, which I hope none of us see that side of Jesus at the end of time, or we're going to see the loving, perfect, gracious, caring father, right? But all of that depends on our willingness to submit to him our willingness to be humble and repent for the evil things that we've done, right? That's what that depends on. This week, we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about sin, because I know everyone just loves talking about sin. 
But we're gonna talk about what do we know of sin? Do we, are, are we dedicated enough to the word of God to even know what we should not do, right? To know what is wrong. And then on the flip side of that, are we dedicated enough to the word of God and to God to know what the proper fruit of our faith should be? What is good? What is the evidence we should be displaying as followers of Jesus that show to the world around us that we follow God, right? Do we know what is evil? Do we know what we should be displaying in our lives? We're gonna talk about that today, okay? It's a short chapter, but I tell you, it's a short chapter. It's, it's exceptionally simple to understand, but the application is difficult, very difficult. So you should've got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in that. Uh, everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, everything will be on the Experience Community app. Just click on Sermon Notes. You got everything right there. If you have a Bible, a physical copy, we're in the New Testament. Right after the book of Romans, you have the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? And we're in chapter five, and we'll get through it relatively quick today, right? Okay? All right, let's pray. We'll jump into this, and um, I, I, I hope you learn a lot from this chapter, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we're so thankful that we can be in this room right now, Lord. Um, we're so thankful that we have the freedom to do what we're doing. Um, we're so thankful for your word that gives us clarity and shows us how we are to live and how to honor you and tells us about you. And in that, Lord, we learn about us. Thank you for that clarity, God. Lord, I pray that you bless our church today. Not just our church, Father, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in those cities, God. This month, we're working with the school system in our three counties where we have churches, and we just pray, God, that you bless our school systems. Lord, that they have the resources they need. We pray that you physically protect our schools and the students and the teachers and the principals, God. And Lord, we pray that our church can be a blessing uh, to the school systems, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, all right, we're about to jump in it, guys. All right, here we go. Chapter five, fun stuff. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that isn't even tolerated among the Gentiles, that's non-Jews. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so if you've ever read the Bible before, originally when the Bible was written, the different authors, they didn't put chapters in it. We did that later on, right? And that's both a good and a bad thing. The addition of chapters and verse numbers are good because we can easily reference certain scripture. It is bad in the fact that we have made the Bible a textbook versus taking it in context. And that's bad. So the thought from chapter four, the narrative of chapter four, runs right into the narrative of chapter five. There wouldn't have been a break there. And the narrative is this. Will the church in Corinth be humble and repent for their blatant sin? 
for blatantly breaking the words of the Bible. So Paul was not only shocked to learn that sin was happening, it had been reported, he was shocked to learn that the church was tolerating it, and he was really, really shocked to learn what kind of sin the church was tolerating. It was the kind of sin that Paul says, man, non-Christians don't even let this go, right? And the sin was a man was having sex with his stepmother, incest. And so he says, not, not even non-believers let this go. And so in the Roman Empire, just to be fair, there was quite a bit of incest in the Roman Empire. If you go back and study Roman history, but it was a taboo. It was something that happened, but it wasn't socially acceptable. It wasn't something that you would talk about, right? But it did happen quite a bit in the Roman Empire. Shockingly though, the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, weren't just allowing it, they were actually celebrating the fact that this was happening. Okay, everyone ready? Look how relevant the Bible is here. The problem was that tolerance, instead of biblical integrity, became a badge of honor for the church. That was the problem 2,000 years ago, and it was destroying the church. Let that soak in just for a second. And so Paul says, you shouldn't be happy about this. You should be really, really upset. Paul was actually surprised. He said, you guys should be distraught about this blatant sin. But he says, you guys are being arrogant about it. You are proud of how progressive you guys think you are. So if we claim to love God, and if we claim to love other people, sin should really, really upset us. It should grieve us, it should disturb us, why? Because, because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means spiritual death, but it can also mean physical, literal death. So the reason why when we find out people are living in sin or sin is going on in the church, the reason why that should bother us so much is because the wages of those actions are destruction, both in this life and for eternity. So here's the thing, sin not only dishonors the Savior, right, that gave his life for us on the cross, sin destroys people, and sin should upset the Christian. This should bother the Christian. So what are we to do? This is where it gets difficult, guys. Paul's conclusion is, and this is important, people that are unrepentant, and look at this, knowingly engaging in sin, knowingly is very, very important. They know what is right, but they choose to do the opposite. Paul says we are to remove them from the church. Church discipline. So what we are to do is we are to meet with people. If we find out that someone is doing something sinful, right? We are to address them and say, listen, this is wrong. We give them the opportunity to confess, to repent, but if they absolutely say, well, I know the Bible says that, but I'm gonna keep doing what I wanna do, we are to separate ourselves from those people for the integrity of the church. Now, this is actually an act of love. Well, Corey, that doesn't make sense. You're gonna kick someone out because you love them? So we're instructed, Paul says in the Bible, that we are to hand people who knowingly live in sin, we are to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which means we are to disfellowship ourselves from them and we are to basically let sin run its course in their life, right? 
that maybe their life has to fall apart a little bit, maybe they have to hit rock bottom. We have to give that side over so they see the ramifications of their sin. But the reason why we do that is not out of malice, it's out of love. Look what Paul says, give them over for the destruction of their flesh. And he goes on to say, so their spirit may be saved. On the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, man, their life might've been completely wrecked by this sin, but if they are humble and repent, they're not gonna be like that forever. They will go to heaven and they will live in paradise for eternity. So when professing Christians disregard the word of God, we have to take drastic measures in the hopes of pushing them into a state of repentance. Why? Because we love them because we don't want people to go to hell. We don't want people to suffer for eternity. And even if we burn a bridge or they don't like us for a short period of time, I'd rather people not like me or them go broke or some things happen bad in this world than them spend eternity in hell. Amen. It's an act of love. So we get this a lot because we're a big church, right? We're about 5,000 people at this church, and so people ask, well, Corey, how in the world can you do church discipline in a big old church like The Experience? Listen, you don't even have to be a big old church. If you're a church of 500 or 300, it's hard to know what everyone is doing, right? And I'll be honest, I don't want to know all the sin that you guys have committed. Don't send me those emails, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't wanna read those. So what do we do? Well, the first thing that the church needs to do, this is gonna blow your mind, is the pastor of the church should be teaching the word of God. So if someone just gets up here, right? It's, well, a lot of pastors don't. The pastor is supposed to get up here, read to you the word of God so it is clear to everyone that hears him or her that, that it is what is sin, what is wrong, what we need to repent of, right? So we should be one, teaching the word of God. The other thing in a church like this is we can limit the involvement in our community. What that means is this. On the weekends, everyone is welcome to come in, sit in those seats, and hear the Word of God taught. That's the way it should be. The weekend should be a complete open door. I don't care what you're doing, what you've done, where you're from. If you want to come in here and hear the Bible be taught, everyone is welcome to come in here and hear the Bible be taught. Now, what I've learned over the last couple of years is just because people come in here and hear someone teach the Word of God does not mean that they're part of the Christian community does not mean that they're part of the church. COVID taught me this, right? There's a lot of people who went to church, but they're not really part of the church. To be part of the church means that you're behind the vision and mission of the church, that you are serving, that you are in some kind of small group, that you contribute financially, that you're in, that you're putting yourself into a position to be held accountable. And in this church, if you serve, if you're involved, we have those relationships and we're able to address sin in your life and limit your involvement in those things. So we can still do church discipline. It just takes a little bit more work than if a church was 30 people like in Paul's day, okay? All right, let me keep going. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul says you're arrogant, you're boasting, but, but you shouldn't be. Because what happens is, if the church allows just a little bit of sin, 
That doesn't mean that people who come in, it doesn't mean that we can dictate who's sinning and who's not sinning. What he means is, is the church has to teach good theology. And if we turn our back on any sin and say that it's okay, even if it's something small, right? If we allow that sin to come in, Paul says that it's like yeast when put into bread. When you put yeast in bread, it changes the makeup, right? The size, the shape, the consistency, everything about the entire loaf. So if a little bit of bad theology or a little bit of the allowance of sin comes into the congregation, it changes the whole congregation. So here's the thing. The incestuous man having sex with his stepmom was not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is, what the, is the fact that the church didn't address it. The church didn't say, that is wrong. That is a sin, and we will not allow it in our church. That was the biggest problem. So we, the church, that's us, we are called to be the pure representation of God on earth, which means we are instructed on how we are to live, how we are to be the example and representation of God on earth by the Bible. I said this earlier though, the problem begins though that most churches don't even teach the Bible anymore. They will do some kind of crazy theatrical thing. They might throw one scripture in there taken way out of context and they have not created a love for the word of God in their congregation. And it's no wonder that sin slips in when we don't even know what sin is. It's impossible to know what is right and wrong unless we value the word of God. So when we fail to address the hard truths of the word, we don't only fail God that so graciously gave us a very clear instruction manual on how to live, we not only fail God in that, we mislead people and people get hurt and people get damaged and people may be lost for eternity because we have neglected the word of God. So. Our problem not only is not the fact that we, not only the fact that we don't teach the word the way we should or value the word the way we should, you and I live in a culture right now that is absolutely addicted to acceptance. We are addicted to it. If you have been here from the beginning of the book of Corinth, remember the prevailing problem. The entire book of Corinthians is about the fact that a bunch of people who knew better gave up what was unpopular, the word of God, in favor for what was culturally acceptable. That's what they did. They wanted to be accepted, they wanted to be affirmed, they wanted to be popular, and that's what they went into. So we have to ask, have we done this as a church in the United States? Have we turned to the broken systems and, and ways of man, right? And, and turned away from the eternal truths of God? And then if we have, we have to ask, well, where has it led us? In the United States, it has led us to the, the Christian church absolutely falling apart. We are shrinking at the most rapid level that we ever have. It is falling apart in the United States. The other thing we have to ask, has our addiction to being affirmed and being accepted, has it brought us peace and contentment as a people? Well, I'm happy right now, Corey. Well, what is the cost of your temporary happiness as compared to your eternal destiny? Amen. Will we trade our eternal destiny for a moment of temporary happiness and acceptance and affirmation? It's ludicrous, it's crazy. But we are addicted to thumbs up and hearts and, and acceptance and popularity and views and likes 
We are addicted to such things. So what Paul says is we have to deal with the leaven. That means sin, right? We have to deal with that. Not only do we have to deal with the theology of the church and the overarching sin issue that can creep into the church, we also have to deal with the sin within ourselves. It's not just about addressing the sin in the church. If we do not address the sin within ourselves, we cannot live in the will of God. Let me give you a practical example, and I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings in here. Again, I say these things because I genuinely care about you. But I can't tell you how many young couples over the years have come up to me, right? A boy and a girl who are dating, they're not married yet. And they'll come up and they'll say, hey, can you pray for our relationship? And I'll say, well, let me ask you a couple of questions first. You guys are dating, you're not married, correct, sir? Okay, are you guys having sex with each other right now? Well, I mean, yeah, we live together and we do these things. And I will say in a nice way, I say, I cannot pray for God to bless your marriage, or I'm sorry, I cannot pray for God to bless your relationship because your relationship is in rebellion to God. I can't pray for that, I'm sorry. I want you to be in the will of God, I want you to be blessed by God, but if you're knowingly doing things that you shouldn't do, God's not gonna bless that. He can't do that, right? It's like if someone comes up to me and says, Corey, can you pray for my finances? Well, are you honoring God with your finances? No, we don't tithe or give or, or do any offerings. Well, then I can't pray for your finances. Malachi chapter three actually says your finances are cursed. Until you trust God with your finances, I'm sorry, I can't pray for that for you. But if you trust God with it, I'll pray for your finances and God will take care of you. But if we are not living in alignment with God, <laughs> it's just logical, right? That we can't be in the will of God, that we can't be blessed by God. So the Bible, fortunately for us, defines what is right and wrong. It defines what we should avoid. Not only that, it tells us by the means by which we are to eradicate sin's hold on our lives. How? by believing in the sacrifice of Jesus, right? By giving our lives to him, by being obedient to the word of God. Then we can live in the will of God. Then we can experience the blessings and the contentment and peace that God wants for us, but not if we're consciously living in sin. And so if we partake in the feast, so this can mean a couple of different things, but one of them that he means by this is, when I tell you at the end of service, whenever we take communion, we have to repent for the sin in our lives because if we take the feast, if we take the body and blood of Jesus with malice and evil in us, the Bible says we take it as condemnation to ourselves. So today, if you take communion, we need to repent for our sin. And if we are repentant and if we're humble, not just can we take communion in, in sincerity and truth, we live lives of sincerity and truth. But what that goes back to, is it is a conscious, deliberate decision to move away from the things of the world, right? And to live in obedience to the teachings of God. That's what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is all about. One yields truth and sincerity, the other yields anger and evil. And we have the choice as to which road we go down, okay? It gets even more complicated, here we go. I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. That's really good, remember that. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister 
and is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Basically, that whole paragraph goes against everything what churches have been telling you guys for a really, really long time. To stay away from sinners, right? And make sure you keep hanging out with those hypocritical Christians. So Paul didn't wanna be misunderstood. He clearly tells the church, do not associate with sexually immoral people who claim to be followers of Jesus. He says, don't even have dinner with people like this. So the big lesson in this, in this paragraph, one of the big lessons is this. We cannot hold people accountable for things that they do not know or do not claim to adhere to. That means you don't have to boycott Disney every time they make a movie that you don't like, right? Now listen, Disney is not a Christian organization. Go to Disney, it's fun, it's expensive, but it's fun. Nothing wrong with Disney. You don't have to get mad every time Disney does something that you theologically disagree with. They're not a Christian organization. You know who you should get mad at? All the Christians who walk around being pompous and, and, and supposedly pious, but they're addicted to porn and they're not honest about it or they're hateful or they're racist or they say mean things to people, right? We're gonna cover all this. These are the people that Paul says, those are the ones you gotta stay away from. Those are the ones, right, that you need to keep your distance from. So we cannot judge outsiders. God will judge outsiders. We are, though, to hold each other accountable, which means we are to judge each other. If I say I'm a Christian, I can judge you by your lifestyle, according to this book, just like you can judge me by mine. If I say I'm a Christian but I'm hateful, something's wrong, right? And I should be held into account for that. I can't hold into account someone that doesn't know anything about Jesus and they're hateful. God will deal with that, right? God will take care of that. The other thing is we are called to be the light in the world. We are not, to, we are not meant to be isolated. This goes back to the Disney thing, right? People who are like, we are going to protect our kids and our family from any outside influence. Paul goes, if you try that, you better zap yourself off planet Earth. It's impossible. Listen, not only is it impossible to completely isolate yourself, it is anti-biblical. Jesus saved you and called you the light and the salt. Jesus even tells an analogy. What good is it to have a light if you just cover it up and hide it? That's in the book of Matthew. It's not supposed to be covered and hidden. In fact, Jesus says it's supposed to be in the middle of the city so it illuminates the whole town. We are to be amongst non-believers. Now, how do we do that? We do that by being insulated by the Holy Spirit. If we are full of the wisdom of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, the discernment of God, if we are full of these things, we can go out into a non-believing world and we can make a positive impact. There is no way for people to accept the gospel if they never hear the gospel. And we are the ones who are called to bring it out there. Well, Corey, it's scary out there. Yeah, that's why Jesus said, I'm gonna send you out like sheep among wolves, right? Yes, it's scary, but you have the Holy Spirit of God with you. And you're not meant to be intimidated by the world or isolated from the world. We are to be insulated because they need what you and I have. 
They need this information. They need to have a relationship with Jesus. And we are the ones called to go carry it out to them. Here's another thing that we learn is we're not to elevate our sin or someone else's sin. We're not to compare, right? Whose sin is worse? We do this really well in Christianity too. Well, hey, look at this community over here that's doing this sexual sin. Got this pile of playboys up in the attic, right? But look at those people. They're really, really bad. Look at these people who are really, really evil, right? I'm racist. I say horrible jokes at work and I'm a little misogynistic, but man, those people over there, they're really, really bad. I love what Paul does. He starts off with sexual sin, but then he just goes and, 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 and tackles everything, right? He talks about greed. He talks about dishonest business practices. He talks about idol worship. He talks about people who are verbally abusive. He talks about intoxication, which means anything that intoxicates you or inebriates you is a sin. So here's the thing, all sin is evil, guys. All sin will distance you from God, all sin will. But to be fair, there are different ramifications on earth for different sin. Whenever people say, well, all sin's the same. Okay, well go murder someone and tell a lie and see if the ramifications are the same. They're not. There are different ramifications for different sin on earth. All sin will separate you from God. But the reason why the Bible says that sexual sin is a sin against yourself is because it will physically mess you up if you're promiscuous enough. STDs, unwanted pregnancies, the, the different psychological effects that it has when we have multiple partners over a long period of time, there are all these different things, right? So it is a sin against ourselves, not just God, that's different. But here's the point. The point of the Bible is not for us to read it and go around and point out how bad everyone else is. The reason why we read the Bible is to identify the evil in us. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, chapter two, this is the one verse that everyone in the world knows, right? Judge not lest ye be judged. We even know it in the King James, right? <laughs> but if you go on to read that verse, what Jesus is talking about is not that we're to not make judgments, but we're to remove the plank of wood out of our own eye before we start trying to pull splinters out of everyone else's, Jesus says. It's not that we shouldn't hold each other accountable, but we first have to address the evil in us. We have to address the evil in us. But Paul says those people that don't want to address their evil and call themselves a Christians, look, look at what Paul says. Paul says don't even have dinner with them. Don't even eat with such a person. We're so busy staying away from non-believers that don't even claim to be Christians, but we hang out with so many Christians who are hypocritical. It's anti-Bible. So when people claim to be Christians but fail to give evidence of that claim, we are to distance ourselves from them. Why? Because it damages the reputation of the church. George Barna has done a gazillion different studies on the church, and one of the studies he did was why people in North America don't go to church, and the number one reason is they believe Christians are hypocrites. And unfortunately, they're right a lot of the times. We say one thing and we do another, right? So here's the thing, you don't have to be perfect to avoid hypocrisy. We just have to be honest. We just have to be honest and caring, stick to the word of God, and we don't have to be perfect, but we don't have to be hypocrites either. We don't have to put on the facade, right? We don't always, act to, always have to act like we have it all together or that we know everything. We just need to be honest, and we need to be caring. So, Paul says, remove the evil person from among the church. Now, this should be the last resort 
This would be the last thing that we do. So what do we do before we remove someone from the church congregation? Well, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if someone is doing something offensive or wrong or sinful, that we are to go one-on-one and talk to them. This is important. It doesn't say go gossip about them and tell 18 people or in a prayer circle say, pray for so-and-so, which is just a very well-shrouded way of gossiping. It says, if you find out that someone is sinning, you need to go to them and talk to them as a brother or sister in Christ, because you love them. Hey man, I found out that you're cheating on your wife. You gotta stop, man. It's wrong, it's evil, it's gonna destroy your family, it's gonna destroy you, it dishonors God, you gotta stop. And if that person says, well, I don't wanna stop, Jesus says they can get a second person and go back, round two, right? If they don't listen to that, Jesus says get a third person, round three. And then Jesus says, then take it before the church, right? And that's where Paul steps in here and says, at that point, it is now time for church discipline. Now, church discipline is difficult, it is messy, it is troubling, it is hard, and it must be carried out with wisdom, it must be carried out with mercy. Here's why, because if you ever address someone in your life that you care for about sin, we always have to make sure that we create a road back for that person into the community. We never need to shut that door completely. Yes, you gotta go because you're living in opposition to the word of God, and that hurts the reputation of the church, but if you ever repent, you're welcome back, right? If you ever wanna get back on track, we're here for you, man. With open arms, we love you, we care for you. And we gotta keep that door open. We have to keep that path back to the church community. Okay, so a couple of important things we need to talk about. The first one is this. Have we as individuals or the church, have we allowed some leaven, sin, inside the community or inside of ourselves? Now, here's the only way we can even know if we have. We have to be dedicated enough to the Bible to know what thoughts and actions are even wrong. The only way to know if we've sinned is we have to be dedicated to this word of God, right, that tells us what sin is. This book defines sin, not your culture. Not the news, not what is popular, right? Whenever I hear people say, well, I think it's good, what is the definition of good? Who defines what is good? Who defines what is evil? Another question is, have we been willingly ignorant to sin? The problem with being a Christian in the United States is when we get in front of Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, there will be no excuse. We have had access to Bibles, we have had access to different apps on our phone that will read us the Bible. We have been exposed to TV shows about Jesus. We have, we've had every opportunity. So in the United States, if you've if you're been born and raised in this country and you stand in front of Jesus and go, well, I just didn't know, there's no excuse not to know. Have we been willingly ignorant or have we compromised what we know is right and wrong because of the pressure of culture? Not only have we compromised it, do we even celebrate it at times? Let me tell you what has happened. There is this erosion that takes place if we're not careful. There's a big movement right now in Christianity in the United States to remove the writings of Paul from the Bible. A lot of them call it red letter Christians, which means we only follow exactly what Jesus said, nothing else. And the reason why they say that is they want to eradicate the writings of Paul. The reason why there is a movement to get rid of all the writings of Paul, which is problematic because he wrote about 70% of the New Testament, 
The reason why they wanna get rid of him is because no one speaks so blatantly about sin as Paul does. He's very, very direct when it comes to sin. So people wanna remove him because he says things that are offensive in our culture. The problem with getting rid of Paul, though, is in one of Peter's contributions to the Bible. Peter says, do everything that Paul tells you to do. Okay, so if we take out Paul, well, then we gotta take out Peter, right? Now, the problem with that is, is in the Gospels, Jesus says, I relinquish all the control of the church to Peter. So if you remove Paul, you gotta remove Peter, and if you remove Peter, well, then you gotta remove Jesus. The problem is, is when one pillar gets pulled out, the whole thing collapses, right? When we compromise one thing, it's what Paul said, when one little piece of leaven gets in, it contaminates the whole thing, right? This is the problem. But we have even become a church in the United States that celebrates things in the church that are the opposite of what this Bible tells us to do. Do we understand that even a little bit of the allowance of sin wrecks the whole thing? Wrecks the whole thing. So what is our job? Listen, Christians, it's not just pastors' jobs. It's, it's everyone that calls himself a Christian. Our job is to stand guard against the corruption of Jesus' bride. When Jesus comes back, we are to present ourselves, not just individuals, but ourselves as the church, as the bride to Jesus, the undefiled bride of Jesus, right? That's how we are to present ourselves to Jesus. So are we courageous enough to identify sin this is wrong because the Bible says so. And then are we courageous enough to stand by it even if people hate your guts? Even if people leave, right? Even if people unfriend us or don't like us or, listen, even if family won't speak to us, are we willing to stand by the teachings of the word? Here's the other side of that. Do we love the people in our lives enough to tell them the truth? Going back to this young couple, right? There's a, there's a certain young couple years ago that came up to me in that exact conversation. We're, we're having sex with each other, and I said, well, guys, that's wrong. They left the church because they thought I was a jerk, right? Here's the thing. I told them in that conversation, it's not just that you're dishonoring God. Government statistics will tell you that people who are sleeping together before they're married have an 80% chance of getting divorced. On the other hand, if you're not sleeping together before you get married and you get married, it's somewhere in the likelihood of 70% that you do stay together. So I even looked at this couple and I said, not only do I care about God, I care about your relationship. And if you two truly love each other, do it the correct way. Because statistically speaking, you're not gonna make it. But they left. And that's not because I didn't give them loving truth. It's because they would rather do what they wanted to do. But do we love people enough, even if it costs us a relationship, to tell them the truth about sin, to tell them the truth about the ramifications of sin? Well, Corey, I love them. Then don't let them drive off a cliff. If you love them, grab that freaking steering wheel and try to go another direction if you love them. If you love them, don't let them go to hell. My God. And we should grieve over that. It should keep us up at night. Do you know what our problem is? Is we are so desensitized to sin in the United States. I'm a Christian, but my favorite TV show is about this guy that just kills everyone, right? Smokes crack and kills everyone. It's my favorite show, right? I don't, I've just made that up. I don't know if there's a show about that, but probably, right? If not, someone's like, hey, that'll sell. 
right? <laughs> and listen, I'm not trying to be legalistic, right? I mean, I love The Godfather. Probably shouldn't have said that at the nine o'clock. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I, I, and I can argue that at the end, I won't ruin that. But anyway, so um, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but what I'm saying is we often desensitize ourselves to sin. So we don't grieve over it because it's become so mundane in the world that we live in. So listen, not only are we able, are we, are we willing to hold others accountable, are we willing to be held accountable? Because again, we don't read this book so we can start pulling splinters out of everyone else's eye. We read this book so we can identify the log in our own eye. So are you and I willing to be held accountable by God? Are you and I willing to be held accountable to that word so when we read words like greedy and verbally abusive and sexually immoral today, if we're doing those things, we're like, I gotta change something. Are we humble enough to be held accountable by the people in this room to where if we're doing something immoral and someone walks up and says, hey, listen, no one else knows about this, but I know. Are we humble enough to say, I need to, I need to repent for that. I need to confess that and I need to change. Let me ask you this. When you came into this place today, or if you're new to the church, did you Google us and see what we believe to make sure that we line up with you? Did people come into this room for affirmation, or did you actually come in to learn something? That's the thing. The Bible even talks about this. Did you know that? There will come a time where people just want their ears tickled. We'll get phone calls. We get dozens of them a week and emails. Hey, do you guys think this, 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 and this? And who did Corey vote for? I just want to make sure before I come, right? because they wanna make sure that I'm affirming everything that they already think. What in the heck is the point of even sitting and listening to someone teach? What's the point in reading the Bible? What's the point in any kind of education? If you already know everything, right? And you just wanna find someone that affirms everything that you already think. Or are we coming and saying, teach me something new? And if I'm wrong, correct me. Not just me, God, right? Let's go, let's go a little bit further. In chapter six, man, I've been building up to it. It's, boy, it's, it's rough. But when we get into chapter six, how will we handle when our feelings conflict with the written word of God? If we call ourselves Christians, well, Corey, I just don't feel like that. Well, then go back to the book of Jeremiah and read how it says your feelings are deceptive. Because if you just trust your feelings all the time, you're gonna ruin your marriage, you're gonna spend too much money, you're gonna get yourself in a heap of problems, right? That's why the Bible says not, don't trust your heart. Trust the Holy Spirit that should reside in your heart. That'll lead you in the right direction, right? The comforter, the counselor, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What if our feelings conflict with the written word? Then what? Here's a very provocative thing that Jesus said. Jesus said a lot of provocative things. This is a good one, though. If we claim Christ, listen, that means that our lives are supposed to mimic Christ and that we are to be submitted to his commands. Whenever I hear someone say, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I mean, I'm doing this thing, right? Well, then you don't love Jesus. Well, how, who are you to say I don't love Jesus? Nobody, Jesus is the one that said it. John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So if someone says, I love Jesus, but I'm doing this thing, Jesus would say, then you don't love me. Because if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's very provocative. It's very simple, isn't it? Let's go even one step further, last slide. Maybe the most provocative thing, in my opinion, and the most simple thing that Jesus ever taught was in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is with his disciples, 
And he tells this analogy that I'm telling you, any five-year-old in this church can understand this, but it is so profound. He looks at his disciples and he says, a tree is known by its fruit. If you were to take a five-year-old into an apple orchard and you were to say, hey, what kinds of trees are these? They would look around, they would see all the apples and they would say, well, obviously it's an apple tree, okay? You take that same five-year-old to an orange orchard and you say, hey, what kinds of trees are these? These are apple trees, right? And the five-year-old would go, no, because there's oranges on them. You'll know a tree by the fruit that it produces. So the point that Jesus was trying to make is this. We can call it an orange tree all day long, but if apples are on it, its fruit proves where its roots are. If we walk around and say, I'm a Christian, but there is no evidence of Christ that is, that is obvious to the people around us, a tree will be known by its fruit. Here's the thing about that though. Do we even know what the fruit should look like? We will not even know what to look for if we do not value the word of God. That goes back to whenever people say, well, he was a good man. Define good. Who defines what is good? Well, I think that's really bad. Define bad. Who sets the bar at what is righteous and what is unrighteous? Who sets the standard by which fruit we should be manifesting in our lives? And the problem with Christianity in the United States is culture has crept so much in, just like in Corinth, it has crept so much in that we are confused to what is rotten fruit and what is ripe fruit. We are confused as to what is good and evil. Well, my favorite movie star said that's good, so I should just do that. That's good, right? I'm an apple tree, I don't, but all I see is oranges. I'm a follower of Jesus. Do you even know what that means? Do, do, do you know what it means? I love Jesus. Well, if you loved him, you would follow his commands. Well, that's really judgmental, Corey. I didn't write it. God himself said it. I'm just, this is just what it says. What is the evidence? If we carry the title of Christian, what is the evidence of that claim? What is the evidence of that claim? Will you bow your heads with me, please? Man, you know what the good news is? I swear there is some today. You know what the good news is? The good news is that if we will just be humble, if we will just, even after a tough chapter like this, if we will just sit back and be like, God, man, I, I need to get my life on track. If we will just be humble, in an instance, God is quick to forgive, he's quick to forget, he's quick to restore, he'll get you right back on the right track. All it takes is our humility. That's all it takes. Us being humble and saying, God, I'm not where I need to be. God, I just wanna submit and I, I wanna do what you, wanna, what you want me to do. That's all it takes. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer or maybe you're a new believer and you got a lot of questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is up here. He taught here last weekend. He's right at the corner of the stage on my right, your left. If you just wanna talk to a pastor, he's right there. He would love to talk with you. 
We don't know everything, but maybe we can answer some questions you have. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you are in this room and you, maybe you wanna confess a sin, these people can't forgive you, but they can pray with you as you ask for God's forgiveness. Or maybe you just need prayer for something in your life. Come up here and let someone pray with you. And then the last thing is this, all the way around this room, virtually all the way around where you see a lamp on a table, there is bread and wine, which represents the body and blood of Jesus. Everyone who has asked God to forgive them of their sins is welcome to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it's just a tangible reminder of how much God loves you and how willing, how far and how willing he is to forgive us of our sins and help us. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I love this church so much. God, it is a crazy world. There are so many distractions and so many different things being spoken to us from every angle. God, I pray that you give us the wisdom, Lord, to hear the right things. I pray, God, that you, you, you help us have value for your word in our lives. God, I pray, Lord, that we can know what is good and what is evil according to you, God. I pray that we can trust you, God. I pray that we can produce the evidence and fruit that you want us to, Lord, so people can be blessed, people can come to know you, God, so we can honor you in our lives. Lord, keep your hand on everyone in this room. Keep them safe till we meet again. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.